All right, our passage this morning is in Luke 15, 1 through 7. Yep. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, both the Pharisees and the scribes came to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hammer time, okay. Uh, I'm going to move this here all the way down, actually. There we go. Uh, hammer time, that's funny, Luis. I just saw a, a stop sign. You know how on stop signs it'll say stop and then... Somebody put something under it. Somebody had put hammer time under one of them, and I thought, that is truly genius. Um, my name is Josh. If you don't recognize me, I'm one of the pastors at Door of Hope Northeast, your sister church, if you didn't know. There is a sister church called Door of Hope Northeast, and that's, uh, that's where I'm a pastor. And it is just a pleasure and honor to be here to, um, to give Ian a break. And, by the way, I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. You know, we, from time to time, uh, we might think about, like, firefighters and healthcare workers and, and think, man, thank, thank God for you. You guys do such an amazing thing. We all, we all need you guys to be out there. That's not always the experience as a pastor. So I just want to encourage you guys here at Southeast Thank and encourage your pastors because they really care. They're caring for your souls. Um, so I just want to put that out there. Ian didn't ask me to say this, just so you know. Nobody asked me to say this, but it's just an observation that uh, very often we take for granted the things that, and the people who care about us the most. And so I just wanted to take a moment and say, hey, um, thank your pastor, encourage them. It is, it is difficult work. Um, it often goes underappreciated, so please, Say thank you to, to one of the pastors here when you get a chance. Okay, enough about that. Enough about me and all that sort of stuff. I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about Jesus. I'm here to talk about the gospel. I'm here to talk about the Bible, okay? And uh, the reason why I'm doing that is because when we, do, when we do this, we are doing one of the most important things we can do as human beings, right? If God really exists and he really has come in Jesus and that God actually seeks a relationship with you and I, the most important thing that we can do with our lives is attend to what God is saying to us. This is the most important and serious thing that we can do. So uh, I know that at Door of Hope, we've sort of cultivated an atmosphere of ca like casuality or whatever you want to call it, which is great. I appreciate that. But just for a moment here, I want to I stop and pray and hopefully like get us into a space where all the other stuff that might be distracting us might might whimper out. Oh, Holy Spirit, 
Descend overflowing into my heart. Enlighten the dark corners of this neglected dwelling and scatter there your cheerful light. Amen. As a prayer from St. Augustine. Uh, by the way, uh, so I've, I sometimes find great, uh, great words in the prayers of others in praying them, so I hope that wasn't too weird for you. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be liturgical on you, but I do think that's a great prayer. Okay, so, um, I have a saying that I just heard on the television. I'm getting it away, and maybe, uh, maybe you've heard this before. It'll ring some bells for you. Do you remember this saying? P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way. Do you remember what that's from? That's from Finding Nemo, the, the Disney animated movie about a I mean, this is a brilliant movie. It's about a clownfish, a dad clownfish, um, who loses his son and goes across the entire ocean to find, to find his son. And what has happened is, is the father, his name's Marlin, um, the father of this clownfish, he's there with his little wife fish or whatever, and uh, they have all their little eggs. And then this barracuda or some, like, brutal fish comes and... and uh, he gobbles up all his little fishlings, eggs, and his wife, and he's only left with one named Nemo. And so he is traumatized by this experience, and he will take no risks and will not allow Nemo to take any risks. And so he says, no, you stay in the reef. You've got to stay close to everybody. Just be, just be very, very, very safe. Well, eventually in the story, Nemo ends up getting captured, and then so Marlin, the father, has to leave the reef. He has to go and take on all these risks to go find his son. And he does all these things that are exactly contrary to everything that he was teaching his son about life, about the world, about the reef. He's doing everything contrary to that. Why? Because he wants to find his son. His son is lost. If he had lost his keys over the edge of the reef, he probably would not have done that, right? So my point in, in bringing this up and connecting it to the parable here is that we show how much we value something by what we do when we lose it, by how much we rejoice when we find it, and how much anxiety we have, and how much risk we're willing to undergo to find what is lost, to recover it. That's what this story is about. That's what all the stories actually in, in uh, Luke 15 are about. There's a, it's actually three stories back to back that are all about something that's lost and then recovered. This one's about the lost sheep that's recovered. After that, there's a few verses that are a parable about a lost coin that's recovered. And then finally, the last one is about two lost sons. We call that the parable of the prodigal son, which is very unfortunate uh, for a title for it because it's really a parable about two lost sons, one of which is recovered. And in all of these, all of these stories, what happens is something is lost and then recovered, and then there's great rejoicing at it being recovered. So that's the point of it. Now, the context coming into this in, in chapter 14 is Jesus has had a series of encounters with other people in which he's stabbing at or trying to break down and untwist their ideas of social hierarchies. He's kind of poking at their social milieu and saying, you guys are looking horizontal at each other and saying, how can I size up? How can I end up at the top of the pyramid? Don't do that. So he, he starts out by saying, hey, you know what? Uh, if you're invited to someone's house for dinner, don't assert yourself into a place of prominence as though you're really important so that your star will rise. 
Because someone else more important than you might come along and then you get asked to go down. That'll be really embarrassing for you. Don't do that. Then he also says, when you have a banquet, when you invite people over, don't invite the well-to-do people who are going to help your star rise, who are going to help your star ascend. Rather, invite the people who aren't going to do that. Invite the nobodies. Invite the people who can't pay you back. Invite them. And then he tells them this parable about a guy who had a banquet, and he invited all the important people. And guess what they did? They all made excuses why they weren't going to come. They didn't show up. So he said, you know what? My house is going to be full. I will not take to this. So go out into the highways and the hedges, the highways and the byways. Go get the deviants, the social miscreants, the nonconformists. Bring them in here and let my house be full. And none of those people who are so important are going to enjoy my feast. And then he finally ends, ends the chapter by saying, unless you hate your father and your mother, your sister and your brother, and come be my disciple, you, you can't be my disciple. It just won't work that way. And just so you know, in, in their society, in saying that, what he's calling you to do is to become an outsider in their society. Because one of the most dishonorable things you can do, one of the ways for people to peg you as a bad person, as a disreputable person, is to dishonor your family like that. So this whole way, Jesus is, is poking at the ways in which we're like trying to one-up ourselves, trying to get higher up. That's the context. And then Jesus... Uh, has this encounter with the tax collector, or with the, um, with the Pharisees and the scribes here. I'm going to read it again, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now here's the interesting thing. I'm going to pause right there. When we see this, you know, obviously we already have in our minds like, oh, Pharisee scribe, black hat, bad guy. So, so we're like, they're doing something, these, these are bad guys, they're doing something wrong. But we don't really know why. We, we don't really understand what's going on. See, what they're actually doing, what, what, what the Pharisees are doing, the reason why they're making a big hubbub over this is because they look at the world very different than we do. For one, they don't see human beings as these isolated atoms that are not even connected to one another, like billiards on a, like pool balls on a table, and so one only moves if another one runs into it. They see life and humanity as a sort of fabric, their society, in which if you pull one of the threads out, the whole thing can unravel. They see human beings, our, our destinies, as inextricably tied to one another. So what you do matters for my own life, for all of our lives. So there's no such thing as like a private sin where, okay, you do that and I'll just, you know, turn a blind eye, whatever, you know, you do you. That's, that's your way of doing it. No, because what you're doing will affect me eventually. That's the way that they looked at it. And one of the reasons why they looked at it that way is because they read their Bibles. By the way, you should read your Bible. <laughs> um, they read their Bibles. They knew from the prophets and from those who wrote the history of the Old Testament that God had made a covenant with Israel. And the stipulations of the covenant were, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. But if you don't, if you reject me as your God, by not following the way that I lead you, I'm going to kick you out of the land. You won't receive a blessing, you will receive a curse, you will get kicked out of the land. And that's exactly what happened. It says that they were kicked out of the land because of their sin. And in fact, when God in his graciousness brought them back into their land and blessed them so that they could start building the temple and rebuilding their lives. There's a guy named Nehemiah. You can read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. Go do it. Read your Bible. Nehemiah, at the end, he, he, 
he establishes everything. He goes away for a little while, and when he comes back, he realizes they're going back into the same sin as before, and he freaks out. He goes, this is exactly what God has kicked out of the land in the first place, and there's this part where he's like ripping a guy's hair out. It's crazy. The Bible's full of this crazy stuff. You should read it. It's awesome. <laughs> but Nehemiah goes nuts on this dude because sin is not this private thing. When you excuse it, it actually inhibits our ability to receive God's blessing. That's the way that they looked at it. Their main question is, how can we live righteously before God and receive God's blessing? And just to, just to ram it home for you, you know, if you actually believed that the gas prices are rising because of sin in our society, you would not be like, oh yeah, you do you. If you thought that your taxes could go down and the price of everything would go down if people would just shape up, you'd be more like these Pharisees saying like, hey, we need to clean, we need to clean this place up. You would be. So anyways, you probably may not have heard me like put the Pharisees in such a light that you would actually be like, well, you know, maybe, maybe they're under something, you know. <laughs> but we have to set this up in order for us to get that punch in the gut that Jesus has for us this morning, okay? So that's the Pharisees. How does Jesus respond? Verse 3. So he, Jesus, told them, the Pharisees and scribes, this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes, to, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! For I have found my sheep that was lost. So Jesus responds by telling them a story, telling them a parable, but he does so in the form of a question. Did you notice that? He does so, in the Greek actually, this whole thing is a question. Would you not, and then he tells the story. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you do that? So here's where the brilliance of Jesus comes in. I love, I love how brilliant Jesus is, except for when it turns on me. But I, even then I love it, because I'm screwed up. So I need it. But anyway, here's how the brilliance of Jesus comes in. He puts it in the form of, the, of a question for several reasons. One is because he's painting them into a corner. He's forcing them into this dilemma, right? So which one of you, if you had a sheep that was lost, wouldn't leave the 99 to go rescue it, right? So if you say, I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't do that, who's going to actually say that? I think it's significant that Jesus uses this sheep metaphor for several reasons. And one is because back in Ezekiel 34, go read it. Bibles are available to you. Go read your Bible. In Ezekiel 34, what God says is, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. The leaders of Israel are called shepherds. That's what the Pharisees and scribes thought that they were. It says, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, for you feed yourselves and you do not feed the flock. In fact, you devour the sheep. So I myself am going to remove you from being shepherds of Israel. And I myself will shepherd my people. So if they say, no, we wouldn't do that, they're basically saying, we're bad shepherds. <laughs> we should be tendering our resignation right now. So that's one option. But if they say, yes, we would do that. We'd leave the 99 to go get the one. If they say that, then what are they grumbling about Jesus for? They should actually be joining Jesus and going after these lost sheep. See how they're painted into a corner, right? So he puts them into this dilemma. And in doing so, he's actually doing two other things. So by painting them into this corner, he's actually bringing to the surface where their hearts really are, where their hearts really are. And 
And he's also, at the same time, showing how God really is. So the first part of that, the way that their hearts really are. So at, at worst, let's just say, let's just take the most crass possibility. At worst, they don't care about the sheep. They don't care about Israel. They just care about their status and prominence. But let's just, let's just give them the benefit of doubt. Say, at best, where their hearts are, they are trying to defend. They're trying to defend a God who doesn't really exist. They're trying to defend a certain version of God that is not reflecting how the real God really is. And what I mean by that is what they are doing is they are thinking that God's judgment, his concern for righteousness, has eclipsed and, and overshadows his mercy. They're saying there's no room for mercy, there's only room for judgment. For them, the metaphor isn't lost sheep. These aren't lost sheep. These are spots. These are blemishes. These are cancers that need to be removed, that need to be scrubbed out, that need to be pushed away. That's who these sinners that Jesus is eating with, that's what they are. See, they read their Bibles, once again, you should do it too. They read their Bibles, but they had a sort of misreading of the Bible. They only read certain portions, and if you read and you put together certain verses of Scripture, you will think this way too. And many people still do. They think God's primary, his, his, his front foot is judgment. That's, that's what God is really after. Justice, righteousness. But the most quoted verse in the Bible, you know what the most quoted verse in the Bible is? It's from Exodus 34. And in that verse, God is actually explaining who he is. I think it's significant that the most quoted verse in the Bible is not only about God, but is actually God himself declaring who he is. Let's see what it says. Oh, the context here, by the way, is Moses. Moses is talking with God on the mountain. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. That is, show me as you actually are. And God says, Moses, I can't do that or else you will die. But here's what I'll do. I'll hide you in the rock. I'll put my hand over you. And then as I pass by, I'll take my hand away. And you can see my backside. And what happened after that was Moses' face glowed. Now, I don't know why it is that when God moons somebody, their face glows. But I had never seen that happen. I've never seen that happen with anyone else. I'm not even going to consider trying it right now. We'll see. Um, even if you asked me, I wouldn't even try it. So anyways, so God, this is what God says to Moses. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, dot, dot, dot. It goes on and says a lot more that I would have to really explain. But my point in, in bringing this up is that the way that God describes himself, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving transgressions, he goes through all that before he gets to, I'm not going to let the wicked go unpunished. So when God himself explains this, this tension between justice and mercy, he puts that mercy foot forward. And that's exactly what they are not doing. That's what they are not doing, right? 
For God, these people are not blots and blemishes simply to be removed, but they are lost sheep to be cared for, to be, uh, for God himself to risk going out and saving. So, he's revealing that their hearts are really more concerned with judgment than with mercy. By the way, our cries for judgment or for justice in our world, um, they're not entirely bad, but do you realize that when you cry out for justice, what you're actually doing is assuming that you are righteous. That if judgment does come, it's not going to fall on you, it's going to fall on someone else. Just something to bear in mind. And by the way, if you're going, Josh, God says that he will judge. I know that. I know that. Jesus knows that too. He's just, he's not saying that right now. He's not saying that right now. It's not this text. That's for another time. Um, So, it's revealing who God is, or who they are, and it's also revealing who God is. How so? Well, I think that there's two, there's two really significant things in here. The first is in, in, uh, in verse 4 where Jesus says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he uh, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine, get this, in the open country, in the wilderness, and go after the one that is lost? Why does he say that? Why does he say oh, out in the wilderness? He just leaves them in the wilderness. If, if Jesus were giving them, like, best practices for a shepherd, this would be a terrible uh, piece of advice. Because if you lose one sheep and you leave 99 to find it, then you don't have one lost sheep. You have 99 lost sheep. Okay? So Jesus is not giving them advice about how, how to manage sheep. What he's actually getting at, I think, is that look at the abandon with which God goes out for the sheep. Look at the value he places on the sheep that he is just going. It's like a parent. You know, if I, I'm a parent of two, two very small children. If one of them were lost, I would not be thinking about it. I would be tearing out after one of them. Maybe like that clownfish. I don't know. But I would be after the one. Okay? And by the way, it has nothing to do, like, this isn't saying that Jesus doesn't care about the ones that are uh, not lost. He only cares about the ones that are. It's exactly like how it is with a parent. If you're a parent, or imagine yourself as a parent, and one of your kids is sick, or lost, or threatened in some way, you have all kinds of anxiety about them, you're worried about them, you're doing everything you can for them, you're showing them all kinds of care and concern, and when they get better, you're going to rejoice and be so glad, and the other kids might be going, well, doesn't dad care about me? Doesn't mom care about me? Of course you care about them. If they were the lost one, you would be doing the same thing for them. So it's not about, it's not about, oh, which one does God prefer? That's not, that's not what's going on here. The point is how much God values those who are lost. That's what God is like. He is a seeker of the lost, a seeker with wreck, what in our mind is irrational, reckless abandon. I mean, just look at the cross. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son? Would you sacrifice your only son? Probably not, because you value, you so value your own child, right? God has so much value and love for those that are lost that he's willing to take on enormous risk, enormous loss to himself. That is insane. And what's even more crazy is unlike Nemo, where there's this kinship relationship that actually is what, is what draws that love out like we do with our kids, or, you know, our love is, is like, well, you know, if it's a nice 
woolly, fuzzy sheep, and they're so cute, like, then you love them, but if they're like this nasty, biting sheep that has parasites, like, ew, that's gross, you know? Like, God's love is not dependent on the object of his love to draw his love out. You might have heard of the 95 Theses from the Reformation, where Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door in 1517. It's not likely you've heard about six months later, he had another disputation called the Heidelberg Disputation. The last point in there, what he says is that God's love does not find, but creates what is lovely to it. What he means is that God's love doesn't go out and go like, who's the worthy vessel? Who's worthy of my love? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour out on them. Rather, God's love pours into unworthy vessels, lost sheep, who are all blotted and blemished and covered in parasites and whatever else. His love goes out and cleanses and purifies and makes them into something lovely. What does John tell us in 1 John? We love because he first loved us us, his love, his seeking actually transforms us. It's not the other way around. You don't clean yourself up and then God will then be attracted to you and give his love to you and his blessing to you. That's not how it works. This is just how God is, period. He's a seeker. He seeks those that are lost. Second point, you notice the joy. This is the other sort of disjuncture in there. (laughs) He finds the sheep, and then he comes back and he calls all his neighbors together and throws a party and says, rejoice with me for my sheep that's been lost. It's not uncommon for a sheep to be lost, actually. And it probably was not the case that whenever anybody found a lost sheep, they brought all their neighbors together and threw a feast. That's actually like really over the top, right? And so, so the reason why Jesus does that is to show how much God, how much joy, how much pleasure God gets when he rescues. When there's a sinner who repents, by the way, the rescue and the repentance and the seeking, all that come together. But God has enormous joy and pleasure when the lost are found. He delights in rescuing. He delights in people turning to him. And just so you know, um, Jesus didn't make this up. This isn't a novum. Uh, it's not like there's the, there's the Jesus God who's, who's this wonderful shepherd and the God of the Old Testament is just angry and uh, all judgment. Go back, once again, read your Bible. Go to Ezekiel chapter 18 and uh, the people are having this argument with God. Right? God, you're judging us. You're, you're punishing us for the sins of a generation ahead of us. It's not fair. And God says, no. The soul that dies will perish or the soul that sins will die is what he says. The soul that sins will die. So if a father's wicked, and he has a son who's righteous, that son won't be punished for his father's sins. But if that righteous son has a, wicked, has a wicked son, he won't be blessed for his father's righteousness. And at the end of all that, here's what God says. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his wicked way and live? God's pleasure is in people turning from their wickedness and living. Not in, not in bringing judgment and giving people exactly what they deserve. His pleasure is in showing mercy. That's where God's pleasure is. So, just to sum it up, and then we'll, uh, good, we're doing good on time. Just to sum it up, and then we'll move into like what this means for us. Here's a picture of God 
God is a seeker. And God is one who rejoices and has pleasure in rescuing people. And just in case you don't catch it here in this story, think about where all of this is going. Jesus is telling this story in the context of God being a human, going to rescue his people by dying on a cross. This is a little microcosm of the big story. God is demonstrating that mercy, in the, in the words of Hebrews, mercy triumphs over judgment by going to the cross himself. Yes, there are blots and blemishes, and you and I are those blots and blemishes because we're full of sin, but he washed us white as snow, as the, as the hymn goes. So what does this mean for us? So what? God's like that? Great. I imagine some of you, they're in a room full of this many people, and I don't know how many people are watching online, it is not, um, th- there are certainly some people who you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're like, yeah, good sheep, bad sheep, whatever, I don't care, seeking, not, doesn't matter. My, my life is falling apart. And if you just got that cancer diagnosis or someone you love has, or if your, your, your child is on the operating table, or you've lost a child, or someone close to you is leaving you, you can talk about all this stuff and it might just sound nice and academic. Good job, wow. And what you really care about is, look at my life. Does anybody even care? Does God see this? Does he care that my life is in shambles? Does he care? That's the only question that will matter to you if you're in that boat. If that's you, I have to tell you, God does see and God does care because you are that one. You're that one sheep. Sometimes being lost doesn't mean it's because you've done something wicked or whatever. I was reading a book, this wasn't in preparation for this, but I was reading a book that was by a shepherd, a guy who was a shepherd, who was meditating on Psalm 23, and he said, sometimes when, when sheep are lost, it's because they'll lay down in a meadow, and one of those sheep will lay down in a little gully, or, the, or the, the, where the greenest grass is, the ground is still wet, and so when they lay down, they create a dent, a divot in the ground, and then they can't actually get out, and the shepherd drives them on and doesn't see that one sheep that's in there, and they can't get themselves out. Maybe you're like that sheep. You didn't do something wrong that got you into this fix. But God is still that shepherd who's going to leave those 99 and go get you. Yes, you, Jesus. <clears throat> Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Yes, Lord, that's my God. If you're crushed in spirit, yes. if you're brokenhearted, guess what? He's already near you. He's seeking you. I love this quote from, uh, from Augustine. He says, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. God knows what it's like. God knows what it's like. Now, there's others of you here, I imagine, who are, uh, maybe, you don't, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're like, wow, I've never heard this. This is, you know, interesting or whatever. Um, I hope for you, you are seeing how God is. I hope you are seeing that God is after you. God is seeking you. 
And whatever it is that's going on in your life, I have no doubt that everyone is seeking something. You're seeking something. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's the avoidance of pain, whether it's trying to do something about that gnaw in your gut that you have all the time where you're not really sure if you measure up, you're insecure, you're trying to figure out who you are, you know that you're not good enough. Or you can't do enough because we live in a world where you've got to have 45 plates spinning and you're like, I can't keep all these spinning. I just can't do it. He's after you. And would you not want to have this kind of God after you? Yeah, you know, you, you, you got to... <laughs> thanks, Luis. We, there's no doubt about you, Luis. There's no doubt. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Do you not want to be rescued by this kind of God? You know, you're, we're all submitting to something or someone. Whether it's the, you know, six pounds of gray matter between your ears. You're some, like Bob Dylan says, you know, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You know, you're, you're serving somebody. Sorry, that was probably a poor impression. <laughs> that confirms it. This is why I'm a preacher, not a singer. But the point is, like, you're serving somebody. Somebody else is in charge and you're submitting to who they are. Why not this God who seeks you and who will rejoice over you when he finds you? Why not this God? Finally, most of you, I am assuming that most of you here are kind of like me. You're fitting into this other category of, like, of, of the 99 who are kind of like, well, I'm glad you said that Jesus cares about the 99 too. Because, you know, I'm not... I'm not a bad person. You know, I pay my taxes. I don't steal from my boss. I show up to work on time. I'm nice to people. I smile when I come to church. I hug my kids before I put them to bed. I'm a decent dude I'm, or gal. You know, I'm a decent person. What's in it for me? Here's the question for you. If you're, if you're like me, if the one thing that God requires, if the one thing that we do that truly makes us human is to love God with all of our being, all of the time. How are we doing with that, 99? How are we doing with that? See, the truth is, nobody is that 99. Maybe for one second I am, you know. Maybe you read your Bible, you pray, you come to meetings like this, you go out and serve people. You're walking alongside God, but you don't realize you're the one who needs to be found. I found this story a long time ago. I didn't know I was going to use it for this sermon, but I remembered it, and so I went back and wrote it down. This is, this is, this is a true story. It's from Turkey. A drunken construction worker who had been reported missing spent hours with a search party looking for himself on Tuesday. True story. It goes on. Relatives of Behan, I'm sorry, Behan, if that's not how you say your name, Mutlu, who's 50, reported, uh, they reportedly became concerned when he didn't return home after a night of drinking with his friends. That's concerning. His wife was unable to reach him on his cell phone, and officials were advised that his friends lost him after he wandered into a forest. A search party was sent for, and Mutlu joined the volunteers in looking through the woods. During the hours-long search in the dark of night, a potential rescuer shouted his name. It was then that he realized that the search party was looking for him. (laughs) 
Now, that's a funny story, but let's be honest. Let's have a moment of honesty. We're all that guy. We're all that guy. You come alongside Jesus and you're feeding those who are hungry. You're worshiping with people alongside of you. But in truth, we're straying all the time. All that, you know, salvation, rescue, is not something that happens once in your life. It's what's happening to me every hour of every day. Is it happening to you? I need Jesus moment by moment every single day because I am like the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We're all prone to wander. For all of us, for every single, wherever you are, the life application is come to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. God is already seeking you. He's already there. He's right next to you. Turn to him and submit your life to him. Throw these these things that you seek after to give you pleasure, to make you feel full, to make you feel like you matter. All these things that we chase after that grab our attention that we think are filling our lives. Just give those to Jesus. Grab hold of him. He's the only thing that's going to matter at the end of your life. I'm not a homeowner, and I feel this pull all the time, like, I've got to buy a house. I've got to buy a house. You need to be a homeowner. It's the wise way to spend your money. But you know what? God does not care whose name is on the deed over the roof over my head when I'm dead. He doesn't care. Jesus didn't have a home. Jesus never had a home. Turn to Jesus and talk to someone about what's going on in your heart. Talk to someone here before you leave. I'm sure there's going to be a prayer team. Come talk to me. I'll be available. Talk to me about what the Lord is doing because he rescued us like the sheep to be brought back into the fold. We're a family. We're a family. We, we talk to each other about these kinds of things. Our faith is not a private thing. We are, that view of us being woven together is the biblical view of how we are as human beings. So talk to somebody. All right, Corey and worship team, you guys can come up. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this quote from, from Augustine. It says this. This is from his book, Confessions, which if you haven't read it, read your Bible. And then read Confessions. <laughs> uh, he says this. Late have I loved you. Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. And see, you were within, and and I was in the external world and sought you there, and in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me, and I was not with you. See what he's saying? He's saying, I was searching, I was hungry, I was thirsting, and I was looking for you, but I was looking at all this external stuff, and I didn't realize that you were the one who's already seeking me. He goes on, you called and cried aloud and shattered my deafness. You were radiant and resplendent and you put to flight my blindness. You were fragrant and I drew in my breath and now I pant after you. I tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me and I I am set on fire to attain the peace that is yours. Is that you? That's you saying, God, shatter my deafness. 
Open my blindness. Give me that taste, that desire that will thirst and long for only you and will not be satisfied until I have you and you only. Do that today, amen? Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.